Human beings have an amazing ability to, uh, to, to live in denial, to think that we are capable of things that we just aren't capable of. This is most noticeable to me at bedtime. Uh, if you've had children and you try to put them to sleep, they always think that they are capable of things that they are by no means actually capable of. Dad, just one more story, and I promise if you give me that story, I will go to bed like I'm supposed to. And you go, sure you will. So you read the story, and you go through the bedtime story, and uh, once it's over, they go, oh, can I have one more? And you said, well, you said after this you'd go to bed, but please, just one more. And then it's always, it's, an, it's a fit, right? Or it's a glass of milk or it's something. No matter how many times you've gone through this, and no matter how much you know that they can't handle it, they will always delude themselves into thinking that they can handle it. This happens over and over and over if you're a parent. They'll go, Dad, if you'll do this, then I'll do that. And you go, no, you won't. I've been down that road 8,000 times. You never actually do your part because you just don't have the will for it. And it's easy to pick on kids and it's easy to tease about them, but that um, lack of self-control is something that we've all, we all experience, something that we all go through. This paycheck, I'm not going to blow through my money quite so fast. Or this meal, I'm going to order the salad. I really am. And then the waiter comes to the table and suddenly the salad is not what gets ordered. Uh, this time, I will be honest with my spouse about what's going on. This time, I'll get out of bed and actually go to church on Sunday morning. This time, I'll really leave that toxic relationship behind and not go back to it. This time, I'm not going to lose my temper. And often, we sound just like kids. I promise, I'll go to bed like I'm supposed to. And then the moment comes, and all of a sudden, our promises don't mean a whole lot. When we started this series about the Holy Spirit, one of the things that we talked about was that the reason we're talking about this series is in part because we have experienced this hypocrisy that the world charges us with as followers of Jesus, but which we charge ourselves with, which is we claim that we have these certain values. We claim that we're a certain kind of people, and then we turn around and we don't live that way. And for many of us, that is frustrating. It is, it's a sense of bondage. It's a sense of slavery. No matter what I try, I cannot escape this thing that I don't want to be, I don't want to do, and yet here I am over and over and over again. And it does sometimes make faith feel hollow. It can feel like, what's the point of going to Bible studies, going, worshiping, what's the point of following Jesus if in the end I'm just going to be the same poor, sorry sap that I was before I started all this. And what we said as we started this series is that we want to talk about living in the Spirit because often it is the power of the Holy Spirit that is lacking that causes us to be there. We gave this imagery of a, a sailboat uh, moving along through the waters with the wind of the Spirit behind them and how that would be different from, say, uh, being in a rowboat and kind of struggling your own way from the middle of the ocean to the coast. And how so many of us live a sort of faith where we're just tiring ourselves out trying to row to shore when God's wanting us to catch the wind of where Spirit is moving. 
And so we've talked about different things the Holy Spirit does and ways the Holy Spirit works. And today we're going to talk about that transformation part. That thing where we live differently, where we don't uh, live in a way that's sort of hypocritical to our values. And we're going to do that by looking at the Holy Spirit in the life of Jesus. Um, Honestly, when Bruce and I first uh, sketched out our series for this, um, this series on the Spirit, this passage was supposed to be about Jesus, uh, the Holy Spirit and Jesus' life, and it's going to be. But the sermon was going to end up being really similar to last week's. Sometimes you have really good ideas sitting at a lunch table and you're sketching it out. And you're like, oh, we'll do this this week and this this week. And we didn't notice, but last week we talked about the, the prophetic part of the Holy Spirit. How the Holy Spirit sometimes moves us to come to places where we critique things that need to be critiqued. And we need to hear it when people are speaking that way. And Jesus, uh, the passage we're going to talk about today, has a prophetic edge to it. And I started doing the sermon. I was like, oh, this is going to be really similar to last week. It's going to feel repetitive. And I decided to open up a little more. Um, Sometimes the headings in our Bible are really bad for us. If you don't know, the original Bibles didn't have headings, okay? They didn't have verses, they didn't have chapters. You just read through them. And so stories would connect that we don't connect. Because a lot of us, we're honest, we read our Bibles, we read the story until the editor of our Bible tells us it's a different story, and we go, oh, it's over. And we slap the book closed and we're done. But sometimes these things actually go together. And today we're going to talk about the Holy Spirit, Jesus, and how it helps Jesus deal with temptation. And actually giving him the willpower to say no to things that he wants to say no to. So it's not constantly living in that bondage we talk about of doing the things we don't want to do. Uh, We're going to start in uh, Luke chapter 4, verse 1. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them, He was hungry. The devil said to him, If you're the Son of God, tell the stone to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone. The devil led him up to a high place and showed him all the in in, in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor. It has been given to me, and I can give it to anyone I want. If you worship me, it'll all be yours. Jesus answered, It is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. The devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand at the highest point of the temple. If you're the son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered and said, do not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had finished all this tempting, he left until an opportune time. All right, this is a story that's kind of weird for us in a variety of ways. Uh, Satan is very present in this story. For some of us that grew up in church, that's really like, oh yeah, Satan, he's just another character in the Bible. Of course he's there. For those of us who are not as used to the Bible, we go, oh, what's this guy? Because we're used to Tom and Jerry cartoons, right? We're used to the, the horns and the pitchforks, and this is very odd. These Christian people still think that that's a real thing? And in this story of Satan, there's a long story in Scripture. Scripture is sort of maddeningly inconsistent in the way it talks about Satan. But nonetheless, what we have here for today's purposes, and we can talk about it more later if you want, is that you have Satan, this tempting being, this being that goes around and is, his name means accuser. 
He's someone that accuses people and says, you're really not as great as you think you are. The way I tend to talk about it is, in the Hebrew Bible, Satan is God's prosecuting attorney. And you know, prosecutors always think everyone's guilty. In the same way, defense attorneys think everyone's always innocent, right? And the prosecutor's job is to always just treat people like they're, they're guilty, whether they are or not, because that's what they do. And this is what Satan does, and it seems over time Satan gets more and more and more zealous about that work until he's just hateful and spiteful and just wants to ruin everything. And so he comes to Jesus, and he's trying to ruin Jesus' ministry by getting him to sin in a way that proves that he's not this holy man he claims to be. And so there's this back and forth with the temptations. Um, I think that you could... Uh, cut the temptations kind of into three. People do this lots of different ways. This is the Caleb way this morning, but you could cut these temptations in different ways. Uh, I think the first kind of temptation here is a temptation from the body. Uh, we all have physical needs. We all have desires. We all have things we have to take care of. Um, things like food and shelter are the ones that we often think about. Jesus here is in this situation where he has not eaten for a very long time. He's got to be really hungry. And Satan goes, hey, You've got the power. Turn these stones into bread. And really the temptation here is to ask Jesus, do you trust God or not? Are you going to trust God to take care of you? Or are you going to take this into your own hands? And Jesus quickly responds that we live on the bread, uh, that God's word is the bread that we live on and that we don't need it. But the uh, fundamental temptation for the body here is do you think God is going to take care of your needs? And that's a question that you're asked often. For us, it usually comes not in bread. It usually comes in paychecks, right? Rappers have this right when they talk about getting that bread. They're talking about money. I'm sorry, that may have reached three of you. But nonetheless, right? Like, this is the way in the hip-hop community we talk about money is it's bread because it's the food. It's your physical needs, what you have. And so, um, <laughs> got a lot of going. But anyways, this is... So this is like, for us, you know, do we trust God that he's going to provide us for financially the things that we need? Uh, the next temptation, I think, is one of control or power. Uh, the whole world, we all believe, I think, that the world would be a better place if everyone would just listen to us. Right? There's very rarely a situation that you walk into, and maybe this is me and a couple of people with my same neurosis, who walks into a room and goes, man, if they would all just shut up and do what I tell them to do. Everything would be better. You know, if my spouse would just do it the way I want them to do it, everything would be better. If my kids would just obey me like I told them to, everything would be better. If my workmates would do the job like I want the job done, it would be better. And this is a desire that so many of us have to control the situation. And I think what Satan is offering here when he brings Jesus up to see all the kingdoms of the world, and he offers them to be king over them all if he'll worship Satan. He's saying, listen, it'll be so much better if you can control. I, I think we miss sometimes the emotion of this. Jesus has lived 30 years as a poor Jewish carpenter in Nazareth, being constantly mistreated and abused and looked over by the Romans. He has seen the Roman government and he knows 8,000 ways that the people in charge of his world stink at being in charge. And I can imagine his mind thinking of all of his friends who get beat on and taxed and just take, treated terribly by Rome. 
And Satan goes, listen, you could be in charge and you could stop all of that. No more arrests, no more you know, centurions kicking in people's doors or smacking people in the face in the middle of the street. No more taxes oppressing your people. We could get rid of Rome right now. Do you want to be in charge? And so the question is, uh, are we okay for God to ultimately be in charge? That is the temptation that comes second. Uh, and also note that this order is different. Matthew and Mark give us a different order. They give us the temple second and this third. Luke gives us this second. Why? I don't know. So um, there's this question. Are you okay with God being in charge? Are you allowed? It's okay if he's in, uh, the one who rules the world and not you. And finally, there's the uh, temptation towards fame. Uh, he brings them up to the temple. There obviously would have been hundreds of thousands of people around. He's like, listen, if you jump down here, God will save you. And you just think of how that's going to feel. I think that there's a big affirmation thing here. We all need affirmation. We need people to tell us that we are good enough and special enough and loved and all of those kinds of things. And this would do that in two ways. Way one, the crowds would go nuts. If a guy jumped off of a building and suddenly angels swooped in and saved him, they would go crazy. They'd be like, you're so great. This is so awesome. You must be the Messiah. And so there's that sort of adulation. But there's also the affirmation of the Father. What tells you that God has got your back more than him sending in an angel squad to save you when you jump off a building? It would tell Jesus, you have to wonder from the back of his mind, Jesus like, am I really God's son? Satan's going, hey, we can find out right now. If you want that affirmation that you are who you think you are, let's do it. We'll find out. And in response to that, Jesus says, no, I'm okay. I know who I am and I know who God is. The question is, are we confident in who we are and how loved we are by God? And so Jesus has all these temptations, and the way that he deals with them is really interesting. There's like this double reference to the Holy Spirit. If you remember, in the beginning of the passage, it says, and Jesus went out with it full of the Holy Spirit, and then the Holy Spirit sent him into the wilderness. The Holy Spirit appears twice, boom, boom, back to back, as if to say this entire experience is drenched in the Spirit of God. The reason Jesus is capable of taking on these temptations to be who he isn't is because he has the Spirit there to reinforce him and to strengthen him. And it's interesting because the way the text reads, Satan is, or excuse me, the Spirit is almost pushing him towards Satan. Read it real carefully. It says the Holy Spirit leads him into the wilderness, and then immediately it says, and now he is tempted. It's as if the Holy Spirit's ready for a showdown. This is something that's really important about this text. If you have the Holy Spirit on your side, you have nothing to fear from Satan. We had a teacher uh, where I went to college. I thought it was really good about this. He would have students come in really worried about Satan. And, you know, I don't know, they watched a, a horror movie or something, and they were just worried that, you know, Satan would come into their lives and possess them and take them over. And he, the first thing he would always say, which I thought was so beautiful, is the one thing I know about Satan is that he is not God. And so Jesus has no fears here because... You know, he's got a lot bigger adversary on his side, right? This is a silly way to depict sort of the way that Scripture would talk about Holy Spirit versus 
Satan or demons or whatever. Jesus talks the same way when he talks about demon possession. He talks about the strong power of God. God is able, through his Holy Spirit, to help you deal with something. And so if you're struggling with temptation, it's not because God's not capable to help you with it. It's probably because you've decided to deal with it on your own. Because there's no, there's no power issue. There's no power problem. Okay, God's got more than enough ammo for this gunfight. And yet somehow we still struggle with these things. And I think it's very essential that Jesus, um, that the story begins with Jesus living in the Spirit, being filled with the Spirit, doing what the Spirit guides him to do. And the Spirit goes face into this temptation. It's like, all right, we're ready. And Jesus is able to overcome uh, what he's tempted to do. The next bit we're going to read here is from the same chapter. And like I said, these are stories I always uh, kept separate. But I want you to see how there's a temptation in this passage too. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. Again, right? Always there. He's at the beginning of the temptation with Jesus and at the end of the temptation with Satan. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. And news about him spread throughout the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has appointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began by saying to them, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son, they asked? Jesus said to them, Surely you will quote this proverb to me. Physician, heal yourself, and you will tell me, Do here in your hometown what we've heard that you did in Capernaum. Truly I tell you, he continued, No prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet, yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up, drove him out of the town, and took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him off the cliff. But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. All right. Before we go any further, we have to talk about what's happening in the story because there's maybe some names and stuff that you all may not know. But basically, Jesus goes to the town he was brought up in, and he opens the scroll, and he reads, and he, he gives this great prophetic passage. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to preach good news to the poor and the prisoners. And this is where this sermon could look a lot like last week's. Because we talked about preaching good news to the poor and looking out for the people who are oppressed. And Jesus talks about how that is the core of who he is. And it's part of his, it's his ministry because the Holy Spirit is upon him. It's also worth noting that Jesus sees his mission in life as preaching. We get so caught up in miracles, but there's several places in Scripture, this being one of them, where it's clear that Jesus saw himself as a preacher more than a miracle worker. So Jesus says this, and everyone's like, yeah, this is awesome, woohoo! And again, Jesus is just looking for a fight. And so Jesus goes, 
you know what? Some of you folks, you're going to want me to start doing the whole miracle dog and pony show that I did down the street, aren't you? He goes, I'm not going to. And here's why. And he gives two stories from the Hebrew Bible where a prophet came into town and ignored a whole bunch of Jewish people in favor of the Gentile people, despite them not being God's promised people. And Jesus goes, because that's the way God is. He shows up and helps the person that nobody else thinks deserves help. And that's the way I'm going to be. I will end up blessing all of the folks that nobody expected. And don't think because you raised me or you changed my diapers or you taught my Saturday morning school class, don't think that you're going to get special treatment because that's not the way that my kingdom's going to roll. And he's starting a fight with these people. And we know that because immediately they got angry. If you heard that story, you go, well, why, what did he say that made him so angry? He basically said, you're getting skipped over. You're in line at the deli, and you've got number 14, but I'm going to go to 28 because that's who I am. That's how I want to do things. Because I care about the people who are overlooked and mistreated in lower position. And what I find interesting about this passage is I think it is another passage about temptation where the Holy Spirit overcomes temptation. Because the temptation to cave to the pressure of his society and his culture and his friends would have been huge. Imagine those people that you love dearly, who helped raise you as a kid, who helped babysit you, that, you know, for many of us taught our Sunday school classes or, you know, showed up at our birthday parties or whatever. And imagine knowing that what they think is right is not what's really right. And you have to tell them, sorry. I'm not going to do what you think is right. I'm going to do what I think is right. That's a huge pressure. That is really difficult. Many of us have a strong sense of loyalty that we'd never be able to do that. And Jesus comes in this moment, and he has that pressure, and he goes, you know what? No, I'm going to do what God has anointed me to do, what God has sent the Spirit in me to do, which is to preach to the people who are not in this room. And it's another case of the Holy Spirit helping Jesus to overcome temptation. Taken together, I want to kind of bring us to what I think this um, can mean for us. If you guys will advance for me. Um, First of all, it shows us, I think, the value of spiritual discipline. We ask, okay, so I feel like the Spirit's not moving in my life. How do I welcome the Spirit? Because it's hard, right? This quickly becomes another work sermon. We'll just work harder and harder and harder, and all we're doing is wearing our arms out the boat, Right? And so it can't be just a work harder sermon, but there does have to be a question of how do we welcome the Spirit into our lives? And I do think that spiritual discipline is important here. Jesus doesn't fast so that he's weaker when Satan gets there. He fasts so that he is stronger when Satan gets there. And that's weird to us. Most of us are real wimps on fasting. I mean, I'm guessing most people in the room probably have never tried it, and even if you have... You know, maybe a day, maybe two. Maybe we've got some crazy strong folks here that have gone a week. But 40 days without food? Some of us can't go 40 minutes without grabbing for a snack, right? (laughs) And so, but Jesus commits to that. Jesus commits, I think, to prayer. It's not explicitly in the text. But if you're in the wilderness for 40 days, I think you'd pray a little bit. You've got nothing else to do, right? And then Jesus' commitment to Scripture, Preachers love this detail that he picked up the scroll and he unrolled it to the place in Isaiah where it says. And we go, oh, 
If I had a church member and I said, please open your Bible to the most important passage in Scripture to you personally, we fear that most of you would go, um, where's, where's the one that says this? Right? Because we we a lot of us don't know. Like if we were asked to give a particular Scripture, we're like, oh, and it's somewhere like, I think it's Paul or maybe Peter or it could be Luke, I guess. Well, congratulations. That's three-fourths of the New Testament. You know, like, we just, we don't know our way around our Bibles well, but here's Jesus opening up Isaiah and he goes, oh, I want to go to this passage. Boom, 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 boom. There it is. He knows where it is. He seeks it out and he finds it because he knows Scripture well enough. And when Satan comes at him, he's quoting Scripture back to him. Um, I think that that's really important. And, and as we said, when he goes back at these temptations, he always responds to temptation with Scripture. Satan comes at him three times. Three times he responds with Scripture. When he goes to the people, he goes, you're going to say to me this, but don't you remember Naaman? And he immediately goes to these Bible stories. I, I, don't, I believe the Holy Spirit works with Scripture. That often the Spirit enlightens our minds to understand Scripture, but also that by knowing Scripture, we just create fertile ground in our mind for the Spirit to work with. You can see in this story that when Jesus had a problem, he immediately thought of a Bible verse about it. Because he was so in the middle of God's Word that he couldn't help but it just pop out. You know, if somebody goes, oh man, like where should we go to dinner? He's like, well, Scripture says. Like he was maybe that annoying guy that's that way. Jesus jukes you all the time. But there's like this deep sense that he knew God's word. And again, it's not like we can force the Spirit to show up or that we earn it by reading Scripture. It's that we transform our minds to where the Spirit can use us in a different way when we're grounded in Scripture. But I think the last thing I want to talk about is just... Jesus had a deep sense of a mission that he was sent on. And what happens with each of these temptations, be they Satan or the synagogue, that Jesus goes, I know who I am. I have been anointed by the Holy Spirit to be a preacher of good news to the poor. That is who I am at my core. And so he could say no to the other temptation because all that stuff was in the way. Uh, this always bothers me about spy movies, right? There's always, like, romantic interests. You're like, dude, you're trying to save the world from nuclear weapons. Say no to the ladies for ten minutes, right? Like, there are more important things to do than to be getting involved. Uh, Wonder Woman does this. She falls in love with a guy in the middle of fighting World War I? What? No! Fight the war and then come home and fall in love. You know, anyways. But there's a sense that when you're in your mission... That you just are not easily distracted. You know what you're doing. And so Jesus is so sure of what his mission is that when Satan says, hey, what about this side trip? What about this distraction? What about this? He goes, no, I know what I'm here for, and that's not it. I'm too busy for that junk. What if we were so busy about what we felt like God was calling us to that these temptations that we can't get rid of, we go, you know, I am just too busy for I am just too busy and I have too important work to do to mess around with lying and cheating and stealing and adultery or whatever your thing is. I'm just too busy to mess with that because I got too much important work to do. Because we know that's the way it is. You will find you live pretty righteous living when work is asking you to pull 80 hours a week, right? Because you just don't have time to get into sin. And there's something about that having a mission. And all of that here is driven by the Spirit. 
Part of the way the Spirit helps us deal with temptation is the Spirit gives us a sense of who our identity is. And that comes to our gifting, which we'll talk about later. This, do you have a sense of what the Spirit has anointed you to do? Because I really think that we all have something that God's called us to do. I think you've got a gifting and you have desires in your heart. You have all these things that are what God wants you to be. Can you articulate it? And it can look like all sorts of things. For some folks, I mean, for, I could think of uh, a woman for whom it's I am the supporter of new moms. I come alongside new moms and I help them as best I can because I know that's hard and I've been there and I have the gift of being a comfort. And so that's who I'm going to be. For other people, um, they're number crunchers. And they're like, listen, the gift of administration, that is me. And so I am the guy who always helps run the church books because I like playing with numbers and nobody else likes messing with numbers. For other people, it's a real sense of mercy and justice. And so they go, I am going to make sure that I raise as much money as humanly possible, build as many wells around the world as possible because I want people to have fresh drinking. And these things all may sound super specific, but I think this is what it looks like when you see an anointing in your life of what God wants you to do. When you see the Holy Spirit working through Scripture to push you to a sense of who you are. For me, it's I feel that God has called me to have conversations with people about the complexity and difficulty of faith. And then when they go, I have a question, I need somebody to talk to about it, then I'm a great person to work it through with. And that's because of my brain and the way I work. Notice that, you know, counseling people or comforting them in their times of difficulty, that's not my anointing, right? And I try it the best I can, but it's just not who I am. Like, if you want to come with your brain issues, I am there. Heart issues, I will do my best. But that's okay, because I got a sense of who I am and where I'm going. Do you have a sense of what God is calling you to in your life? Because when you have that, you start to get way too busy to be messing around with the stuff that we mess around with. And I think this is the way the Spirit keeps us from temptation. 